tonight we go to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. There are 12 chapters. I mentioned this last week in Ecclesiastes. And so tonight, chapter-wise, we can reach the halfway point of this book because we're going to look at the entirety of Ecclesiastes 6 tonight. And really, as you get into chapter 6, Solomon is, is kind of turning from this first part of the book where he has uh, taken us on this tour, so to speak, of futility and what life is like under the sun, outside of the things of God. Um, and he's shown us different things. We'll, we'll review those here in a few minutes. Um, as we search for what it means to live or how to live a meaningful life. That's what Solomon teaches in Ecclesiastes. And he has taken us to different places and shown us there is no meaning and there is no um, purpose in these things in and of themselves. Um, We need a relationship with God. And so tonight in Ecclesiastes 6, I kind of, what you kind of see here is, is a chapter that kind of ties all these things together and really brings down the weight of futility upon our hearts and our lives and upon our souls. Not every truth in life is a welcome or inherently happy truth. Some truths that we hear weigh heavier on our hearts than others. Some jolt us into the reality of what a situation is or what is truly going on. However, the thing we need to remember is this, just because something is hard to hear, difficult to accept, or even a little grim, doesn't make it wrong or even unloving. We need hard truths in our lives to help us understand the way things really are. The fact is that many hard truths in our lives are given to us in love that we may grow from them. And we need certain realities in our lives exposed so that we may avoid certain mistakes, states of mind, or flat-out bad decisions. Now, at the end of the day, we have to understand this. No one can make us do what's right. But if we have been presented with the truth and we still continue on in sin, the responsibility of that decision lies in our own hearts and our own feet to do what is right. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon presents some very hard truths. He leaves little doubt that life without God is empty, futile, and meaningless. And that is a hard truth, right? That's a very difficult thing to hear. And try as we might to fill it with good things or find some shred of meaning, there's there's nothing here in and of itself to give us that, just on its own, under the sun. But though that is a hard truth, it is a necessary truth. For if we will listen to what Solomon has to say, we can find true hope and meaning in Jesus. Solomon brings us to the section of the book to close out the weighty truths of futility that are coming to bear once more. And and so here tonight in Ecclesiastes 6, you see this. Because... I will not find fulfillment in the futility of life, but will only find emptiness and seeming evil. I must seek fulfillment in God alone. This is the reality of what's going to happen. 
If you're going to try to find fulfillment and meaning and purpose in this life only, and in the things of this life, whether they be experiences or possessions or money or relationships or whatever, fill in the blank. If that's where you're going to try to find your purpose and your meaning, this is what you're going to find. You're only going to find emptiness and seeming evil, as Solomon states it here tonight. And because that is true, it should drive us the other way to understand that our fulfillment comes in God alone. And all of these things that Solomon has talked about, where we might seem to find meaning or we think we'll find meaning or fulfillment, we can enjoy those in him, in God, in their proper place. As long as they are not, of course, objectionably sinful, right? Uh, we, we can never find uh, meaning in sin. We can never find goodness in, in what is wrong. There's nothing there that lasts and pleases the Lord. And so we'll jump in here tonight and see what is it that Solomon wants to show us here as we kind of close the end of this first half of Ecclesiastes and these thoughts. And in verses 1 through 6, Solomon presents us with a, a dissatisfying experience here on this earth. And he talks about, first of all, that there is an absence of joy in life under the sun, again, where we focus if we're focusing only in these things. Ecclesiastes 6, verses 1 and 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Throughout the first six chapters here, Solomon has taken a tour around mankind's experiences. Just to recap some of these things, Solomon has taken us to wealth and possessions. He has taken us to work. He has taken us to pleasure, to accomplishments. He's taken us to the temporal world. He's even taken us to the pursuit of wisdom in these things. In each one of these things, in and of itself, Solomon has said, it is vanity, it is hevel, it is empty. It, it promises you something and it's gone. None of these can provide you with any real answers or real meaning in life. And so Solomon wraps these thoughts up here in chapter 6, viewing life again under the sun. Here he sees an evil that lies heavy on man's heart. He says, there is an evil I have seen under the sun. The reality of life's dissatisfaction is hard to swallow. It's something that to our own fleshly selves seems awful and evil and wrong. We want to think that in life we're going to be different. We want to think that, well, I'm going to be the exception to the rule. I'm going to, I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm going to be the mold breaker. But Solomon says that this is a universal tr truth that lies heavy on all mankind. And here he says, here's what he sees. Another case study here. He sees a man who, who has it all. He can have wealth. You know, he can have all the money he'll ever need. He can have possessions, all the stuff 
he'll ever want. He can have honor, all the praise and power that he can find here on this earth. And because of this, if he has all of these things that are mentioned in verse 2, he lacks nothing of all that he desires. He, he lacks nothing on this earth. Yet, Solomon says he never experiences the fulfillment of actually enjoying any of these things because he doesn't have the fulfillment of his greatest need to to enjoy that and that's the ability given to him by God. We saw this last week that God is the giver of anything we have and everything we have in life. Without him then there can be no true joy found in this life and so if you if you were to back up to the end of chapter 5, you would see where, where Solomon says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. We said last week that, that perhaps the greatest thing that God can give to anyone's life is the ability to enjoy the things God has given him. Because without God, we're not going to find that. And that comes primarily then through a relationship with God. Instead, Solomon says, here is a man, he has wealth, he has possessions, he has honor, he lacks nothing, right? He has it all. But what does he not have? He doesn't have the ability to enjoy any of it. Such a man without God's blessing gathers all of these things, and why does he gather them? Well, at the end of verse 2, a stranger, but a stranger enjoys them. This man cannot even enjoy the fruit of his life. He lives his whole life. He gathers to himself everything that one would want on this earth. But either through premature death, disaster, some other dire occurrence, he's unable to enjoy these things. Instead, they are given to other people to enjoy. And Solomon looks at this and he says, this is heaven. This is, this is a grievous evil. This is a horrible thing. That here's the guy, he spent his whole life going after all these things. He had everything that, that anybody could ever want here in this life, and he doesn't even get to enjoy any of it. From our own human minds, right? That doesn't seem right, does it? That's very heavy. That's a hard truth to accept. It's a severe affliction. But again, it's a reminder, there, are no, there is no lasting joy in life's experiences alone. There is no meaning in the endless quest for more. There is no substance in the things of this life. Now sure, you may enjoy some good things for a time. You might find bright spots along the way that make you forget for a time the disquiet of your soul. But you cannot escape the reality that life's endless quests are going to leave you wanting in the end. It has always happened and it will continue to happen. Enjoying gifts without a relationship with the giver is idolatry. And that will never satisfy the craving God created inside of you as a worshiper. Because as we have said before, we are all worshipers. We are created to worship God and God alone. And so try as you might, life's existence is in fact lacking. And he continues this, arguing this dissatisfying experience with the lack of the existence in this life in verses 3 through 6. He says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, 
and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. So Solomon continues his argument showing that existence, even having existence in this life, is no promise of meaning apart from God. Here's a man who has an incredible experience and a prolonged existence. We read here in verse six, or verse 3 that he fathers a hundred children and he lives for many years. So to speak, he reaches the, the pinnacle of human time and existence. In the Israelite culture of Solomon's day especially, a man who, who was described like this is someone who was surely experiencing the blessing of God on his life to have so many offspring and so many lives, or so many years in his life, that surely he's enjoying God's special favor. It seems like he's left his mark on the world, having everything a man could want. Yet Solomon says this, if his soul is not satisfied, what does any of it mean? If your soul isn't finding joy and satisfaction and rest and your, your spiritual self is not finding its true needs met, what you're doing on the outside doesn't matter. When he comes to the end of his life and he has no proper end. I mean, that's an astonishing thing to read at the end of verse 3. His soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial. The idea here means that when he dies, no one laments his passing. That's a horrible thing, isn't it? You have everything. You, 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 you leave your mark on the world and then nothing, it doesn't mean anything. And nobody's worried about you when you're gone. Nobody cares. So just... Just existing, right, isn't even enough to find meaning. I thought about naming this sermon tonight, Existence is Futile. You know, put that out there. That really, really brings people in. But that's what you feel here. He lived and experienced much in life, but the end was lacking. He found no answers for the questions of his soul. He found no hope for a longing heart. And no, ex, no external experiences or accomplishments mean anything without inward satisfaction. Not even a prolonged life filled with many descendants promised him anything, any meaning or provided any answers. So Solomon says this. So therefore, okay, you know what's better, he says, than, than having a long life and lots of kids and, and getting to the end of your life and having no meaning. You know what's better than that? Never being alive at all. That's what Solomon says. He says, a stillborn child is better than the one he just presented. He says that a child, a stillborn, enters life in vanity in heaven because he never really had life, right? He is born dead. A child like this goes out in darkness, never having lived life or known anyone. Darkness here represents... When Solomon says here in, in verse uh, 
4, it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Darkness here represents the realm of the dead, and it's contrasted with everyone else that Solomon has talked about who lives life under the sun. This child never knew the sun or the good things the world promises. And we read this, what Solomon says here, and again, it weighs heavy on our hearts because as a parent, a stillborn child is a horrible, grievous thought. I have a a friend that, that he and I went to high school together. I remember sitting in a church service as he was burying a stillborn child. It's a horrible thing as a parent. The pain and the sorrow experienced by those connected to this tragedy is unimaginable. Solomon says that a child like this, though, finds more rest in life than the man who tries to find meaning in existence on earth apart from God. You see, because that child finds rest while, that, while the man is trying to scratch out meaning under the sun, he's never at rest. And in fact, what's amazing to think about here is this. Here was a man who, who had all these things and nobody mourned his passing. More people mourned the death of a stillborn child than, than mourned this man. A soul that is searching for meaning is a restless soul indeed. And he says here, he continues, he says in verse 6, that he could live for 2,000 years in a life like he's described, with all of these kids and, and, and all of this, uh, this, whatever he wants in life. He could still never find the meaning he's searching for. And if he truly, if he enjoys truly nothing that is good in this life, the question is this, what are those 2,000 years really worth? If you truly don't have a relationship with God and you truly don't know what the meaning of life is and you truly don't know how to find value and and a purpose for existing, what does it matter if you live for 90 years, if you live for 25 years, you live for 2,000 years? It's all the same. It's heaven. It's empty. A hundred children and thousands of years on earth do not promise you any meaning. The stillborn child and the 2,000-year-old man in verse 6 are headed for the same end. He says, do not all go to the one place. You know where they're going? They're going to the grave. Death is inevitable. And it is a relieving end to a restless existence for the man that's mentioned here. And so, the soul of mankind feels the crushing weight of heaven, of emptiness, of vanity. When our meaning is linked to the world we live in, our lives spiral. When our worth is inextricably linked to what we have, who we have, what we know, what we understand, what we accomplish, and what we control, we will never find satisfaction and answers in our lives. When you are trying to link worth to things on this earth, you're never going to have any answers. And that's a hard truth. It's one we long to understand, but it's the way God has set up the world to work. He set it up this way, that you cannot find meaning in the experiences of this life alone. Now, some people will argue with you. 
right? Well, I have found some meaning in this life. I, I found some enjoyment in this life. And, and certainly there are some who seem to be more settled in this world than others. They seem to have a purpose in life, though they want nothing to do with God. But the heart of every man betrays his deepest thoughts and desires. And no matter how many times you attempt to satisfy your cravings, they're going to return with a need to be fulfilled again. And Solomon continues to make that argument as we go into verses 7 through 9 and see the dissatisfied cravings that he presents. He says, first of all, in verse 7, these cravings in life are unfulfilled. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. There are some base cravings that drive mankind to do what he does. One of these is hunger. So Solomon sees all the toil that man undertakes for the benefit of food in his belly. The scriptures are clear, right? That the people, people who don't work, they don't eat. That you have to have something in order to feed yourself. You have to do something. There's a reward then for fulfilling the purposes for which God intended us to fulfill. And so, again, here is a base picture. Solomon says that hunger makes, makes one realize he's going to need to work in order to, find, in order to find provision in his life. But again, it's an endless cycle. It's like the treadmill that just never stops. There is never a time in which you and your life do not need to eat again while you're living on this earth. There is no meal that you will eat that will be your last from the standpoint of filling you up forever. Listen, if you have kids, you know this, right? It's like you can't fill them up, right? They just keep feeding them and feeding them. It's just, you just go back for more. The appetite of man, Solomon says, is never fully satisfied. It will always return. And so what is Solomon saying here in verse 7? What he's giving in verse 7 is really a microcosm. It is a, a small look at what, what we all experience in life. That the appetites of men, the appetites of mankind, always desire more. That's the way the world works when you're out there trying to find fulfillment in these things. And if our appetites in life, whether they be for food or just the general appetites of trying to find meaning here, are the controlling force of our lives, there is not much difference between us and the animals carrying out their base functions as ordained by God. You look outside and you watch the animals do what they do, right? They go out there, they get the food, they go to this, they go. They're fulfilling the base functions that God has given for them to do. And if that's all we're doing in life is going around trying to fill up our appetites and trying to do this and that, then we're just going through the motions and we're never going to find any meaning. And you can fill these cravings with whatever strikes your fancy at the time, but they always return. These are universal experiences. And that's what Solomon says here in verses 8 and 9. He says, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool and What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity at a striving after wind. So these rhetorical questions in verse 8 show us the universal principle of man's dissatisfaction. It's across the board that man is dissatisfied apart from God. 
There are no exceptions. Whether you admit it or not, there is a dissatisfaction apart from God. The wise and the fool, Solomon presents, are both dissatisfied. The poor, but who knows how to get along in the world, though he may have less, will still never be able to find true satisfaction in this world. You can make better decisions, you can have more skill, you can enjoy more benefits in life, but you are ultimately going to find the same results. So Solomon says this, what the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. Our eyes see a lot of things in life that we think are going to fulfill us and make us whole. They look so inviting, they look so good. Our eyes may be pleased by what we see, but our souls cannot be filled, Solomon says. Our souls desire more, and we will not find it here on this earth. So Solomon is saying this, it is better, in verse, at the end of verse 9, when he says that, um, that, the, that the sight of the eyes is better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite there at the beginning of verse 9, he's saying this, it is better to, to look at what you have in life and be thankful than to desire more in an effort to find more satisfaction and meaning. He says it's better to, be, to see what you have and, and to put it in proper perspective and, and to enjoy what you have than to think, I'm going to go out and find something else that's truly going to make me happy because it's never going to end. It's just going to be one thing after the next. It is vanity. It is the endless chase after the wind. And this, again, is the point to which Solomon has driven us this entire time. He has brought us to experience after experience just to tell us it's empty and endless. I mean, it's just, if you feel like we're beating the same drum, we kind of are week after week. It's like he brings you to another thing. He says, look at this. Like last week it was wealth and possessions. Look at this. It's empty. It's hevel. You know, look at the wisdom. It's empty. It's hevel. Look at the, the, the pleasures of life. It's empty. It's hevel. Look at the relationships. It's empty. It's hevel. Time after, just, just like a museum of emptiness, right? And we have to admit that there's something about this that just feels so dissatisfying, right? It just feels so, like, again, heavy. But that's exactly what it is. It's, there's a dissatisfying answer that we have to come to in our own wisdom. And in verse 10, Solomon says, whatever attempts you're going to make, to try to understand all of this and try to get ahead of it, they're pretty unoriginal. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. As a general rule, every generation thinks it's better than the last. Right? This time it'll be different. We have better technology. We have greater understanding. We have new ideas. These are all mantras of the generations. But Solomon says, hey, not so fast, right? Slow your roll, okay? What has come and what you're going to try has already been done. It might look different. You know, it might have different paint on the outside, so to speak, but on the inside, it's the same. It's, a, it's just an attempt at the same goals, the same ideals, and the same answers. And he says here in verse 10, we know what man is, 
right? We know what he's capable of. We know what his makeup is. It has been set forth in the word of God and in the history of man that man is a finite sinful being. That God has made us dependent on him for true fulfillment. That's what Solomon is saying. We, we know the answers. And try as we might, we can't change that. We know, Solomon says, that man cannot dispute with the one who is stronger than he. And I, I want you to understand here that this, when he says this phrase here in verse 10, that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he, that is a direct reference to God. Man attempts to wrest answers away from life. He attempts to outdo God. He thinks he can play God, forcing the world to satisfy or even forcing God to give him the satisfaction and answers he wants. But God is stronger than we are. He always has been and he always will be. One of God's own followers we read about in the Old Testament was reminded of this fact. Maybe you've heard of a guy named Job. We are told in the scriptures that Job was a righteous man committed to serving and following the Lord. And in the book of Job, you read that God tested his faith and he removed everything he owned and everyone he loved from his life in order to test his faith and show that Job was a righteous man. His health was afflicted. His friends were no help. And Job wanted to know why. He wished to know why God did what he did. We resonate with Job, right? Like, wouldn't we want to know the same thing? And so, at the end of the book of Job, God comes to Job and reminds Job who he is. In Job 38 and Job 39... God questions Job, asking him to show his power and his ability to hold God accountable. He says, okay, you, you want me to tell you. You want me to answer to you. you. You show me your power. You show me what you know, basically. And guess what? He can't do it, right? The Lord, so the Lord questions Job in Job chapter 40. And so in Job 40, verses 1 and 2, we read this. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And so then for the balance of Job 40 and much of Job 41, or all of Job 41, God then again displays his might and his sovereign control. You get to Job 42, and Job confesses his sin of 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 this of doubting God and not trusting him and following him and he returns to trust in the Lord and you need to understand that as you read the, this thing you go back and you read what what happens to Job God never tells Job why he just tells him who he says we cannot dispute with God the almighty that's what Solomon reminds us of here he is in control. He sets the rules. He is the sovereign Lord of creation. And you know what? The world works the way God says it's going to work. 
We experience all these things that we experience in life in his perfect will and plan. And so there is no level of human understanding or accomplishment that will bring us closer to God or help us attain godly understanding. The answers we seek are found in God alone and in trusting him. And we can try as we might, but the questions are going to continue to go unanswered. And that's what Solomon brings us back to in verses 11 and 12 to wrap up this chapter He brings us to unanswered questions. He says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Here's the thing. You can pile up words and reasons and arguments. You can try to explain away the futility of life all you want. And that's typically what we do. When we don't understand something, or we're powerless to change our reality, we just employ countless words and theories. We, we make up questions and fill our lives with consternations. And you can try to reason out how to get what you want, but the more words you use, Solomon says, the greater hevel becomes the more things we try to fix our brokenness the more broken we become right the more things you use in life to try to fix the brokenness you feel in your soul it just shows you how much more broken you are there is no betterment to man in these things endless words and unanswered questions will not help your status or need and so solomon comes to the end of verse 12 and he says who knows who knows what is good for man or what comes after him on this earth and the obvious answer there are two obvious answers right to what he asks these rhetorical questions in verse 12 number 1 the answer is well no one knows that no person and the other obvious answer is god knows that No person can tell you these things. Only God is the answer. So again, Solomon makes the case for us. What are you going to do in this life? Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty of man. The only escape from heaven and an endless quest for meaning is a relationship with God. The only way to a settled heart is to rest in the Lord. And so because I will, find, I will not find fulfillment in the futility of life, but will only find emptiness and seeming evil, I must seek fulfillment in God alone. The reality of life's futility weighs heavily on man's heart. It, it creates noise in our souls. It thrusts us into an endless pursuit of meaning in this life where we will find no such meaning. And if you have attempted in life to find meaning on earth through any temporal pleasures, possessions, relationships, achievements, knowledge, and more, you have been and will always be let down. I don't care what you think it is, and I'm not just saying this because it's my opinion, it's what God says. I don't care what you think is going to give you meaning in life, it's going to end up the same way. It's going to let you down. It's not going to be enough. He said, well, I mean, good thing I'm a Christian, right? I've escaped that. 
yes and no. Because even the Christian life is fraught with temptation to live for the moment. Countless Christians have no peace in their souls, right? God tells us with a relationship with him, we have peace with him, right? But countless Christians have no peace in their souls and they flit about from one experience to the next, one worldly pursuit to another, one chase for meaning after another, one hopeful fix after hopeful fix for whatever problem they're currently experiencing. It's exhausting, right? And we can say it this way, it's devilish. The only hope we have for meaning is Jesus Christ. The only rest for our souls is in him. No relationship, no number in the bank account, no possession, no experience, or anything else in life offers you, that this life offers you will give you meaning and answer your questions. So it doesn't mean that you pack it in and you just abandon these things in your life. It just means you need to quit looking there for real help and look to the Lord for help. We need to submit everything we have or everything, anything we experience in this life to God and his control. He defines our lives and the experiences we have here. He commands us how we are to go about our lives and live for him. And when we do this, seeking to obey and honor him, we can live fulfilled lives for his glory and enjoy the wonderful gifts he has given us. This is why I've said the phrase before, and we continue to say it, as a Christian, you need to continue to preach the gospel daily to yourself. The gospel doesn't stop with, okay, I said the prayer, and now I've got the gospel. You have to live in the reality of the gospel with the help of God every day. We need that. The temporality of this life and the futility that we feel in it, even as a Christian, they weigh heavy on our hearts. Perhaps it feels sometimes like the walls are closing in and it's crushing. So we must understand that the weight of life's futility is lifted at Calvary. And our vibrant relationship with God as a Christian is what continues to define our lives and give us the meaning we so desire. Father, thank you for the day you've given us to be in church. Thank you for the word of God that continues to speak to our hearts and lives. We pray that you would use this tonight in our hearts. Lord, we are so tempted to look for meaning in things that don't last. We are so readily given to trying to cover up the noise of our souls with the latest experience or this possession or this pursuit or whatever it may be. Help us instead to look to the word of God, to look to you. Not giving up the things that, that, are, that, that, that we must do in this life to become, some, um, to become some hermit that lives in, in a bubble. But to understand that everything we have and experience in this life must be subjected to our relationship with you and you alone. 
Help us to live to the glory of God in these things. I pray for one who has tried everything in life, it seems like, and has never found satisfaction, that you would convict them tonight of their need of a relationship, for a relationship with you. That you would show them the hope of the gospel. Or that you would be with Christians tonight, that you would help us to, to see that this sin so easily and readily sneaks back into our lives if we let it. Help us to live lives that are consumed with you. We ask now that you would Help us to go forth this week to live for you, your kingdom, and to share this with other people. And, to, and we pray that you would convict our hearts and empower us to make right decisions this week. Decisions that would help us take the next spiritual step in you. In your name we pray. Amen.